Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service time, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Amen. You can be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're back into our study of this letter we're calling the letter that changed the world, the book of Romans. Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome, and it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in this, so I just wanted to go back and do some review. Remember we said this was at the break between, at the end of his three missionary journeys that we read much about in the New Testament. Paul had a desire to go to Rome and minister there, and then from there to go on to Spain, and he'd hoped to get encouragement from the Roman church maybe to help on that next missionary voyage that he had, journey that he had planned. Uh, he wrote this letter to lay out his, his theological premise, presuppositions, and to introduce himself to the, the church there at Rome. We talked about that early church, how it was most likely a primarily Jewish church, a Jewish congregation, which much of the churches in the first century were. And then as the church grew, uh, what happened was one of the Roman emperors expelled all the Jews from Rome. This is about 20 years has gone by since the gospel was, since Jesus first pre- preached and went to be with the Father. So as Paul's on those missionary journeys in that time, the Jews were pushed out of Rome, and that congregation became a primarily Gentile congregation. Well, time went by in those years, and the Jews were allowed back in, and as they came back into their church, guess what they found out? Their church was no longer led by Jews, it was led by Gentiles, so some friction occurred, and we see a little bit of that in some of Paul's writing here. He's addressing the Gentiles, he's addressing the Jews, they're both there in that church. So, let's look at just a a quick review of some things before we even get into chapter 3 of what we've looked at. First of all, we looked at chapter 1, how Paul established his credentials in the first 15 verses of chapter 1. Verses 16 and 17 in chapter 1, we've said were the, really the heart, the, the summary of the whole book of Romans where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and the salvation to all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile or the Greek. And then he makes that incredible statement in verse 17, the righteous or the just will live by faith. That really sets the tone, that's the summary for the whole book. And then in verses 18 through the end of chapter 1, Paul lays out a very, uh, very sobering reality, very sobering truth, where he says God reveals himself to mankind through his creation. And then he says this in that section, God's revelation of himself can be clearly seen in nature. And then he sums it up with this, therefore, all of the Gentile world, all of mankind is without excuse. We talked about that, the reality of that, and one of the things we said that's important for us to to take home with that truth is the knowledge that everybody in this world is without excuse, they're all accountable to God, should move us and motivate us to share the gospel with people because they are without excuse. Then in chapter 2, Paul has already said the Gentile world was without excuse, and I'm sure the Jews were saying, preach it, Paul. And then in the chapter chapter 2, he begins to, to lay out the fact that the Jews are without excuse. They felt like they were exempt from God's judgment. But, but he says to them in this section, God's judgment is always fair, it's always right, it's always true, it's always just. And then in the last part of chapter 2, he really zeroes in on the Jews and he, he talks about how they had squandered their privileges 
as the people of God. He lists these privileges there. They had the name Jew. They rested in the law. They boasted about their relationship with God. They knew God's will. He talks about how they were to be guides to the blind, spiritually blind. They were to be light to the dark world. He talked about them being instructors to the ignorant and and teachers of the immature. And we we said application of that truth is that, that, that if we're to live a life that draws people to Christ, it cannot be a life of legalism that just clings to those outward rituals. We have to be people who live changed lives. And we said that it's easy to say the words, remember, and it's much easier to say the truth than to let it take root in our life and transform us. And then Paul in that section in chapter 2 comes down with the the statement that the Jews were inconsistent. And he just says very clearly, you teach others, but you need to be taught. You preach against stealing, but you steal. You preach against adultery, but you're committing it. You boasted in the law that the Jews were given. That was the treasure that God had given them. He said, you boast in it, yet you break it. And bottom line, he says to the Jewish people, and you can plug religious people in there, okay? He said, bottom line, You've dishonored God's name by your inconsistency. And we made that application to us as the people of God today that if we live inconsistent lives, we dishonor the name of God. And then as Paul wraps up that section and talks about the outward sign of the covenant, circumcision, and he just says very clearly, a, a true Jew or a true believer is one who's one inwardly, changed heart, changed life, not one just outwardly. So now we're ready for chapter three. The issue here, Paul talks a little bit about the righteousness of God, and we've talked about that too, but we need to understand the Jewish mindset. They, they understood that the righteousness of God, we, we see it as the, the character of God, that he's right and just and true, and he's without sin and that he's holy. The Jews had a sense, as you read through the Old Testament, that the righteousness of God meant because they were privileged, God would always do the right thing for them, and they interpreted that as he would always bless them. So whenever Paul refers to the righteousness of God, they think about all the passages in Scripture where it it says God loved them so much he was going to bless them. And they miss the point that God calls for obedience. I was reading about a professor who said he taught theology for 20 years. He said in 20 years teaching those same classes over and over that he he could, on his own, tell every question that was going to come up in those classes. He could anticipate every question because he'd been through it with so many students. Well, I think that's what Paul does here. Some have said there were opponents writing, and so Paul has to answer them. I'm not sure if that's it. I really think what Paul is doing is he's anticipating of all that theological truth he just unloaded on them in chapters 1 and 2 that I just lightly unloaded on you in review, that all of that truth that was unloaded on them, he's anticipating these questions. So we're going to look at those questions. So you follow along in your Bible as I read aloud. Here's some of the questions. So what advantage does the Jew have? Because Paul has just said they're privileged, but they, they, they're, they're uh, without excuse. So then, what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way, he answers. First, they were entrusted with the spoken words of God. Another question, what then, if some did not believe, will their unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? He answers, absolutely not. God must be true even if everyone is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. Statement of the character of God. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness, another question, if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? Paul says, I use a human argument. 
Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Verse 6, absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, now this, by the way, this last question is, is really, I think Paul's saying, and it's ridiculous that anybody would ask this question. It's absurd, but he puts it in here anyway. He says, but if by my lie, God's truth is amplified to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim, we say, let us do evil, what is evil, so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. What in the world is Paul talking about? I've found this to be the case through, we're only in the chapter 3 now. And I open up my scholarly works and commentaries and the the scholars who've studied this, the New Testament and Old Testament scholars say, this is one of those passages that's the most difficult in all of Scripture to explain. I say, great, here we go again. We've already been across some of those, but let let me just break this down into four questions and four answers, okay? So I'm calling it theological Q&A. Question number one, in verse one, what advantage does the Jew have? If you've told us that the Jew is without excuse, they're accountable to God, they're, they're going to stand before God, then what advantage do they have? Verse 3, what advantage? I'm, I'm sorry, verse 1, what advantage do they have? What is the benefit of circumcision? In other words, what advantage does the Jew have if, you're, if we've already talked about the law and the privileges and, and circumcision as its mark of the covenant, then what is their advantage? Here's his answer. The Jew has many advantages. He acknowledges that, but not immunity from judgment. They do have many advantages, but not immunity from judgment. In verse 2, considerable in every way. Paul says, yes, there are a lot of advantages. But implied here is one of them is not that they're exempt from God's judgment, that they have immunity. It's interesting in verse 2, Paul answers the question, considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the spoken words of God. And then he goes on and asks another question. Some have said, well, Paul says first they've been given the spoken words of God because that's the most important thing. I don't think so. I think, I think Paul is about to give us a list, and he gets sidetracked. That ever happened to you? I think he's just excited. He wants to communicate this truth. He says, first of all, they've been given the words of God, and many scholars believe that Paul picks up that list on in chapter 9 when he talks about the Jew and the relationship with God. So we'll, we'll get there eventually. The Jew has many advantages, but not immunity. I love what Jack McGorman said. No one is so hardened against God as those who have maintained their rebellion against him so close to the altar. Wow. Those Jews had everything. They had the word of God. They had the law. They were entrusted with it. They were to be a light to the world. They were given the tabernacle as a picture of their relationship with God and ultimately the temple and the the altar of surrender and obedience. And they had all of that right there, yet they had hardened their hearts. And they thought, we've got all this stuff. We're immune from the judgment of God. Here's a bullet point take home for this section. No matter how many excuses we make for our sin, we must still answer to God. Don't miss that, folks. That's the truth for the the Jews. All of what they had, but we have the law and we were good and we have the... We have the tabernacle and we have the sacrificial system with all that stuff. No matter what the excuse is, we still have to answer to God. I read this week about an app. I'm not sure if it's still around, but a guy decided to be a great thing if there could be an app on your phone that would fill your calendar up in an instant. And here's the purpose of this app. If somebody says to you, hey, can you help me move next Saturday? 
All right, so you pull up your calendar and you open the app and you hit this button, get busy or whatever it says, and automatically your phone will download everything that's going on in your area onto your calendar. Yeah. So you can say to your friend, oh man, I wish I could go, but we've got this and we've got that. Oh, look at my calendar, it's full. (laughs) Don't go looking for that, all right? Look at all the excuses I have to not help you move. I'm, I'm booked. That's the Jew. God, look at all these excuses we have for not having to be accountable. Be careful. Just because God has said, you're my people, doesn't mean we're immune from accountability with him. Question number two, it's in verse three now. And I'm summarized it this way. Does Jewish unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Does Jewish unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Look at verse 3. What then? If some did not believe, if some were unfaithful, will their unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? That's a fair question, I think. That's that question that says, if I mess up, then it's God's fault. Look at Paul's answer. Verse 4, absolutely not. God must be true if everyone is a liar. As is written, you must be justified by, in your words. You may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. Spoken of about God himself. Here's the answer. Does the Jewish world uh, uh, group unfaithfulness nullify God's? No. Despite his people's failure to believe. Here's the answer. God's promises to save are still faithful. They're still advancing. God is still working. Even though his people messed up. There's a good question for us. Is God still faithful even though his people aren't? Even though his people mess up. I am thankful to God that he is faithful no matter how much I mess up. Repeatedly in my life I have said, oh God, thank you that you were faithful when I was not. Listen, it doesn't matter how unfaithful we are. God's a faithful God. Don't misunderstand me. We're going to talk about this in detail. God still calls us to obedience and holiness. We are to live a faithful life. We talked about it last time, about how important it is that our lives be a light to the world, that that any inconsistency in my life has a tendency of pushing people away. So understand that's true. But no matter how inconsistent I am, no matter how messed up I am, God is not inconsistent. He is not unfaithful. He is faithful always. We can't negate that. Because it's who God is. I love Paul's answer there. Absolutely not. Let everyone mess up. Be a liar, he says. Let everyone mess up. God's still a faithful, true judge. He's sovereign. Here's an application point for us. We can trust God to fulfill his promises. We can trust him to fulfill his promises. He said it. You can count on it. Someone had a bumper sticker that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And somebody else said, well, you need to erase one of those words because God said it, that settles it. Whether you believe it or not, God is faithful. God's faithful. Just one illustration that sort of helped me know, helped me with this. How many of you, when you travel, stop at Bucky's? Okay. All right. Some of you. Why do we stop at Bucky's? Clean bathrooms. Now, I know some of you are there for the coffee and the barbecue and all, but my family looks for Bucky's for clean bathrooms. That, that's, and you know why we know we, we can do that? Because everyone I've ever stopped at has had a clean bathroom. That's their, that's their claim to fame. 
Can you imagine if you'd come, come up with that idea a few years ago? I think I'm going to build a business on a clean bathroom. You're crazy. That's what they've done. But here's the deal. I know that no matter which one I stop at, they're going to be faithful to have a clean bathroom. It's, they're consistent. Now, they're human. They could mess up, I know, but I pretty much count on that. See, God says, this is who I am. This is how I act. No matter where you park, I'm still faithful. No matter why you stop, I'm still faithful. Max Lucado in Cure for the Common Life tells a story about getting a bank overdraft notice on his daughter's bank account. We know about that, parents, right? Our kids go away to college and we get these notices on their bank account. So here's what he says. He says, what should I do? Send her an angry letter? Admonition might help her later, but it won't satisfy the bank. Phone and tell her to make a deposit? He said, I might as well tell a fish to fly. He said, I know her liquidity, zero. Transfer the money from my account to hers? He says, it seemed like the best option. After all, I had the $25.37. I could replenish her, replenish her account and pay the overdraft fee as well. And then I love this. He says this. Since she calls me dad, I do what dads do. I covered my daughter's mistake. Since she calls me dad, I do what dads do. Can you make the connection? Since we call him father, faithful, true, sovereign, in control, loving, merciful, just. Since we call him father, he's going to do what fathers do. And that is always be faithful. Paul answers that second question clearly. Question number three, it's in verse five and six. The answer is in verse six. Verse five, if our sin, and this is my, my uh, paraphrase of that, if our sin highlights God's righteousness, isn't it unfair of him to judge us? Here's the question. Look at verse five. But if our right unrighteousness, our sin, if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I use a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? So here's, here's what they're asking. Since it seems to be apparent that as sinful as I am, it makes God appear even more holy. Isn't it a good thing that I sin? That's implied. Of course, Paul's thing, and this is a ridiculous question. Isn't it unfair of God to judge us? Here's Paul's answer. Absolutely not, in verse 6. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? Here's our answer. He says, no. With that kind of logic, with that kind of logic, God could not judge the world, could not judge anyone in the world. Here's, here's what he's saying. This person's questioning. If my sin highlights, if my unrighteousness highlights how righteous God is, he shouldn't judge me. It just wouldn't be fair because my unrighteousness makes him appear righteous. And Paul says, absolutely not, no way. I paraphrase it in the 830 service, no way, Jose. Think about the worst mass murderers of history. Think about the Adolf Hitlers. Think about the people who kill thousands. Think about how evil they are. You would say, well, they need to be judged, right? That's fair. They need to get what they deserve. Paul says, what about all of us? If you're saying 
If you're saying God shouldn't judge you, you're saying by that standard of logic, then God can't judge anybody. One scholar said, if we use human logic to argue away the wrath of God, we must take away God's role as judge of the world. So be careful about your own logic of whether it's right or wrong for God if he's fair. Here's our point of application there. Don't bring your own agenda to the study of Scripture. Here's what the Jews had done. They brought their own agenda. We're the people of God. We're blessed. We've got it going for us. He told us that. We can do anything we want. He's going to bless us. They brought that mindset to the truth of Scripture, and they distorted the reality that they're still accountable before God. Be careful if you're a Christ follower, if you're a Christian, about about thinking you have all these privileges. Therefore, God's not going to hold you accountable for your life. Be careful. There's, There's a term that theologians use. It's called exegesis. It's not the word Jesus. It's a different word. But exegesis, it means to take out of the Scripture the truth. X, X, take it out, X. And what, what we're cautioned in theological studies is to be careful about eisegesis, which means reading into the truth. You ever heard people say that? They read into that, what wasn't there. That's what the Jews did. They read their own logic and their own mindset and how special they thought they were into these truths. And whenever, as this special privileged people, read these passages that Paul shared with them, they just kind of uh, twisted them around. Be careful about doing that. There was a great religious movement when I was growing up, and the the premise of this movement was everywhere where the Bible talks about Israel, it's actually talking about America. So that's what they said. They said, so wherever you read any promise to Israel, that's for America. Built this big theological premise on that, and here's, here's, here's how they did that. Many ways, but here's one way. They said, if you will look at the word Jerusalem in the Bible... The three middle letters in Jerusalem are U-S-A. Therefore, they said, whenever you see Jerusalem or Israel, it's the United States. Yeah, you're shaking your head. You wouldn't do that. A lot of people have. Be careful about looking for the answer to meet what you think it ought to be. I can't tell you how many times people have come to me just wanting me to tell them the answer they're looking for. Yes, it's all right for you to do that. Good, the pastor said it was okay. Be careful about that. Don't bring your agendas to Scripture. Question number four. And by the way, a lot of commentators put question number four with number three. It sounds the same. I really think by the time Paul gets here, he's exasperated. And you'll see by his final statement in this last verse here. Let let, let me just go back and read that verse 7 and 8. But if by my lie, God's truth is amplified to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not sages as some people slanderously claim? We say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Here's the question. If my sinning makes God look better, does that mean that I should sin more so that God can be more clearly seen? How could they ask that question? Because they brought their own preconceived logic to the truth that Paul was trying to present. 
and it became distorted. Think about that. And Paul says, I'm, this is ridiculous. He says, some people slanderously claim we say this in verse 7. I mean, sorry, in verse 8. If my sinning makes God look better, does that mean I should sin more so his glory can be more clearly seen? It's the mindset of those people that said, since God's grace is abundant, let's sin more so his grace may, may superabound. Here's what Paul says in response to that. It's the last part of verse 8. He says, their condemnation is deserved. That's what I think he's saying. Saying that you're sinning so that God can demonstrate grace is an attitude that is worthy of judgment. Saying that God's grace is so good that I can do anything I want. He says, someone who says that, their condemnation is deserved. They're worthy of judgment. By saying that, they're demonstrating that God is faithful and right to judge them. Listen, folks, sin is always rebellion against God. Sin is always wrong. It's always rebellion against God. It never is God playing it for his favor. Sin is what caused him to send his one and only son to die on the cross in our place. We read it this morning in connection class. God made him who knew no sin, Christ Jesus, to become sin for us so that in Christ we might become what? The righteousness of God. Sin. Sin is what made the crucifixion necessary so that he could die in our place. Here's your take-home point. It is easy to take God's grace for granted. Don't do it. Don't do it. Those of us who believed in once saved, always saved, those of us who believe in, of us who believe in eternal security, we're, we're constantly said, oh, you're, you're, you're making too much of God's grace. You tell people they can live any way they want and still go to heaven. No, we're not. We're telling people that if you're saved, that if it's genuine, if you've been converted, if, you tra- if you've been transformed, you will not live any way you want. You will not demonstrate that your lifestyle hasn't been changed. Be careful about taking God's grace for granted. It's easy to do. In Decision Magazine, Karen Morrod wrote about shopping for a sweater. I'm just going to wrap up with this. She was in a store looking for a sweater. She said the cost had to be minimal. So she went to the clearance rack. My wife loves to go to the clearance rack. She says, as I flipped through the sweaters, one caught my eye. It was the right color and the right size, and best of all, the price tag was right. It was marked $8. So she bought this sweater. She thought, I, I, this is what I need. She might have said, this is God's will. She says, I went home and I slipped on the sweater. Its texture was like silk. I had made my purchase so quickly that I hadn't even noticed how smooth and eloquent this sweater was. Then I saw the original price tag, $124. I gasped, she says. I had never owned any clothing of that value. I had come home with what I thought was a cheap buy, but the original price was quite high, and it had been oblivious to me. I had been oblivious to its value. Then she says this, just as with my sweater, 
I've often treated the power of Jesus' blood like a cheap purchase. His grace, though free to me, carried a very high price tag. Folks, let's don't ever take that for granted. Let's understand that God is a holy God. And we have sinned, and we need a Savior. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, the Bible's very clear. We'll get there in the rest of chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. God demonstrates, verse five, chapter 5 in Romans, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John chapter 1, the Bible says, As many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave right to become children of God. You need to receive him by faith. It's not enough to say, I know that I've sinned. You need to be willing to turn from your sin and by faith trust Christ as Savior. If you've never done that, in just a moment, I'm going to lead us in a prayer and I'm going to invite you to come and make that commitment. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, I just pray that the reality of the truths of those questions we read would just be, mind. we'd be mindful of that and never take for granted the grace of God. Let's pray together.